All right, today we're going to be in John chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 36 together. So let us hear the Word of God to us this morning. The next day, the large crowd that had come to feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey colt. Donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been, and, and had been done to him. And the crowd had been with him when he, was called, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead and continued to bear witness the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up front to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who was with Bethsaida in, from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went to tell, and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth, into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there, he has served, there my servant must also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come for, to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it said that um, and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them, to him. And Jesus answered, "This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself." He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, I have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Guys, have a seat. Glad you are here this morning. It's good to be back with you after being gone last Sunday. A uh, couple of quick things that uh, we're going to want to, I want to make sure I share with you. One is, I know it got cold in here earlier. That's why it's warmer in here now. But if you nod off, we're going to freeze it out next Sunday. Okay. Um, I get, I don't know about you guys, I get days, I get, like, my eyes get heavy when it's a little warmer in the room, okay? Um, and I am, big guy, bald head, I don't want to sweat a whole lot when it's here, but we're going to do it for you guys, how about that? I, I hear from some of our ladies some Sundays, it's a little cold in here, it's okay, we love you, 
so we're going to turn up the heat. All right. Uh, you know, one of my favorite memories um, as a child was the fact of how, I guess, what a large part the sport of basketball played in my life. Um, I, I, it's probably of all sports I followed was the one I followed the most. I loved basketball, loved college basketball. Loved, I, back then, I think it was the golden age of pro basketball. You had Jordan, you had Magic, you had you know Larry Bird. You had all those guys that were kind of that. They're kind of I will call them the second generation of the greats. But I, for me, still I, like think they're the best because I you got to see the dream team form for the first time for the USA team. You saw that huge reign of the uh, the Chicago Bulls. At, in the early 90s when they finally got their act together there with Jordan in Chicago and Phil Jackson there as their coach. But one of the things that just, like, if you hear it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And maybe you might even be able to hear it in your head when I even say it. But does anyone remember the intro sequence to the Bulls being called out to the court when they're at home? Does anyone kind of remember that in their head? I do. I definitely do. My wife's got her hand up. She's like, I'm the only one, maybe? Yeah? No, if you don't, I'm just telling you, it was epic. It was like a coronation. It was a coronation of the king, right? It was, it was Jordan would be the last one they would call out there when they'd announce their starting lineup. And it was dark, and they had this little this, this, this music, and you know they had Scottie Pippen and all the other greats that were on that team, Horace Grant. But I mean, I would watch this on WGM when it would come on. That was, you know, it's a Chicago base station, and it was always on twice a week, I felt like. And it was, it was seriously one of the things that I loved to enjoy watching as a child. I was a huge college basketball fan. Um, for some folks in here who follow college sports, I'm a Duke fan. You, I, I'm not going to apologize for that. So I love Duke University basketball. I love those guys. But anyway, point is, I'm just saying how much this particular game meant to me, and particularly kind of remembering some of those things, those magical moments. We, we know how to throw a show here, do we not? And I just remember, like, that's what they would make a big deal out when during that time when the Bulls were so great, the Chicago Bulls were so great, like, they, would, they made a big deal about it. Such a big deal that it's like, if you go to, like, a high school game today, they, like, these high school teams try to do intro sequences with the same music to their teams as they come onto the court. You're like, this is pretty awesome. It was like a coronation of a king. But it's, it's as awesome as that was, it pales in comparison to the coronation of our King Jesus. Amen. And that's what we're going to see this morning in this text. A coronation of sorts. Uh, a coronation that, is, that falls short in some ways, many ways. If you know what a coronation is, it's just a celebration of a king. A celebration of a royal ambassador. If you followed uh, the show The, Th uh, the Crown... One of in the first season of that, they have the big deal about her being Queen Elizabeth being uh, coronated into her office at such a uh, young age, and it was just filled with just tons of regalia, tons. And and no matter how big a party we throw for those kinds of things, nothing surpasses, nothing surpasses the greatness of our King Jesus. And even in our attempts, as we see here today, in this triumphal in, uh, entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and everyone's hailing their praises of Jesus, it pales, even their attempts to hail him as king fall well short, because nothing short of his own death and his resurrection 
would be able to give the full weight of his glory as our king. Like they, they still didn't see it. After everything that Jesus had done publicly, after this great final sign of Lazarus and his resurrection from the dead, resur resurrecting him from the dead, and everything pointing to this moment, this hour, as it is said, we saw here and we see in this text, this hour, people still don't see Jesus. And that's why I'm entitled my message this morning is seeing the king or the king is coming. Do we see him? Are we willing to, are we ready to embrace this king? Are we ready to see him, acknowledge him for all of his greatness? Because here's the thing for all of us who follow Jesus in here this morning is that as we see this hour in this text dawning, and we know it has already dawned, right? We must remember that we live today, as the first disciples did, to see the full revelation of God's glory in Christ Jesus through his death. And only through his death, friends, do we see, or I'm sorry, can we rest in the full weight of his mission. You can't understand what Jesus has come to do if you don't understand that the death is the key to what he has done. And his resurrection, of course, as well. So again, let me say that again. As the hour of Jesus' coronation dawns, his people only are able to see, are able to see his, him, his glory revealed through his death and are able to rest in his mission that he was sent to accomplish. I've got three thoughts from this text this morning that I hope will help us uh, frame it up. I want us to think about what it means to anticipate the king. I want us to think about what it means for us to see the king. And I want us to think about what it means to rest in that king. What does it mean for us to anticipate that king? What does it mean for us to see that king? And what does it mean for us to rest in that king? We can see all of that here in this text this morning. Let's consider anticipating this king. Now, God's providence is so amazing, right? Because next week begins the sequence of Advent. Now, I don't, you guys know this about me. If you've been around here for a while, you know I'm a big, I love the Advent season. I always have. Love Christmas season. I like, I, I particularly like the spiritual elements, right? The biblical elements of Advent, but I like all things Christmas. I mean, I, I love all things Christmas. But when we are, we cannot kind of not step aside from that coming next Sunday as kind of the first Sunday of Advent and not see that God in His grace provides this text to kind of set us up for that. Because really what Advent is about is about waiting on your king. It's about the fact that you and I know that the king has come once, but he's coming again. And so if we want to grasp the fact that he's coming again, we got to get what he came to do, what he came in the first place to do. Like we can, you and I can say, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. But do you understand the full weight of what he came to do in the first place? Because if you don't, you don't get the king that's actually still coming. And I want us to rest in that. And I want us to kind of press into that so that when we set ourselves up for Advent this year, we can maybe enjoy it in a deeper way this year. Prepare our hearts for it in a deeper way this year. Here's a way that I want to encourage you before we kind of dive in to prepare for Advent. One is being in the room on, during these Sundays because we're going to do our Advent wreath as we typically do. We light up, we have some readings, we have different families come and do those portions of our service. 
that'll all lead us to Christmas Eve. And Christmas Eve was a little bit of a letdown last year. And I will tell you why. Not because the ones who were in the room didn't have a wonderful time, but it was just the fact that because we had all the stuff going on with the Rona, and I was down with the Rona, it was just really kind of not what we have typically built up here at Grace Church to be. This wonderful time when we come in the room at five in the afternoon, it's dark outside, we're getting ready for our dinner that evening with our families. And it's just a time to set aside for about an hour to candles lit, reading scripture, singing carols, and a short remembrance of what Christ has come to do. So I hope that you'll participate in those things. That's going to be the rhythm. We're not doing a special sermon series this year for that, but those things will be helpful to us. But also some things that I want to encourage you in your own home life. We've got a couple of different options here, and you can go find them on the bookshelf down in the cafe. One is, and this was kind of an unexpected one, Table Talk, which is Ligonier Ministries' little devotion. We, we try to get about 10 copies of these. We have a few people who read them. They got a whole one this time uh, on the theology of Christmas. Do you have a good theology of Christmas? Can it be improved? I bet it can, because mine can. I would encourage you to pick that up. And again, first come, first serve. Once they're gone, please only take one per family, all right, just so to make sure they can spread out with me. Same thing for this one. This is one we got plenty more copies. We've got 40 copies of these. It's called The Weary World Rejoices by Melissa Kruger. Daily devotion starting on the first day of Advent all the way through Christmas Eve, and, uh, or Christmas Day, rather. And I would just encourage you, pick this little thing, little guide up. Use it at home. Dads, read the short portion. It's two pages. Moms, whoever, whoever's available. I know we get a lot of busy lives. I know we got Christmas parties. I know we got all kinds of fun things that we're going to do this season. But step aside from the, the manic life that we live and spend some time reflecting on the, not only that we are celebrating the coming of Jesus and his first coming, but that we are now turning with that same joy to anticipating his second coming. So you take advantage of these things. So after church this morning, like go grab it so that you can go ahead and get started right away next Sunday. Okay? I hope you'll take advantage of these things. I really, really do. So here we are. We're diving back into the text this morning. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And he's arriving with hells of praise. Everybody in the area knows who Jesus is at this point. Or at least most people do. And they're having this celebration that's unusual, by the way, for the Passover. I mean, Passover is more of a somber of the feasts, right? Lots of death, right? I mean, it's, it's rumored that there would be somewhere near 2 million people who would travel in or around Jerusalem during this season. Of course, you know, they don't know exact numbers, but, they, but there has been rumors that there, I mean, there were different, different people would tally that there's probably 250,000 sheep or lambs given for sacrifice at the average Passover during this day. Can you just imagine the amount of blood that was spilt? Now, I, I, I go there and I go deep with you there because that's exactly what we we're meant to see here. Here comes Jesus riding in on this donkey. People are praising him. They are forgetting about the weight of death that's all around them in this season of Passover. And they don't see that he's come to do something that they can't even begin to fathom. And you and I know what it is. To put death to death. By his death. And that 
when you think about the celebration that's happening here and how, how odd this was, it's, it's, it, it, can, it can really begin to make you think deeper about what's happening during this whole sequence of, evalu- of, of, of Passover and what all of that means. Because everyone here was anticipating who Jesus was. They were all asking the question, could, he, could it be? Could it be that this is the one? This is the one we've been waiting for? This is the king that we've been hoping for and longing for? Could this one be it? Does that, does raising the Lazarus, is that the signal? Was that the signal, God, that he's it? And yet everyone's here and they've still got all the questions, but they're still, they want something to celebrate. Death destroys us. And even our events that are right when we celebrate those things, because it does take death to seal and save us, is what happened out of the excess event, right? Even in those deep and dark and depressing realities, there's something that wells up in all of us that is so longing and so waiting for the King to come so that death no longer reigns. And here we are, they're making a big deal. Because there's no secret, the Jewish people were waiting on this king, this final king, this eternal king. I'm a geek on theology, you know, and I love covenant theology specifically. And covenant theology just helps you tie all the pieces together when it comes to the Bible. That from the very beginning, God has been pointing us towards this great king. The king who's the serpent crusher. The king that is the sacrificial lamb. The king who will be the final prophet, the final word of God himself, as with Moses and the law. The king who would be the final Davidic king to sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. All of this was weighing in the back of their minds this year because of everything that had happened with Jesus. And they were just wondering, is this it? Is this the one? But see, here's the thing, though. Most of the Jews... Us too, if we're honest. We get so bogged down by our circumstantial realities. And what we'll do with that, if we're not careful, is that we'll begin to reform Jesus, reform the Messiah, reform the King that we want into something that the King is not going to be. And so these Jews had had their fair share of hardship. We all know it, right? Egypt and slavery, threats from alien nations all around them, uh, occupation and exile into Syria, Babylon, and Persia, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greek in Greece who came in and ruled them and even did uh, abominable things in the temple right before the Maccabean Revolt. I mean, this people knew what it meant to suffer to come face to face with death, their entire existence was about coming face to face with death. And you and I might be thinking, wow, what a poor and wretched people. But actually, it might be something quite good in that. Because God would never let his people not take their eyes off the reality of death. And you and I get into these places where we get in these little funks in our life, and I do too. And I see the reality of my own sin and the depressing nature of all that. And I think, my gosh, why does my God not love me? But maybe God lets us come face to face with our death so that we might actually, when the time's right, see the right king who comes to overcome death. 
And that's the whole point, right? That God put this whole feast of Passover in play so that the people would have to come and reckon with death and sin and rebellion and, and destruction every year of their life. And they had to see it through with, with gallons and gallons and gallons of blood spilt for their own sin that would never atone for their sin fully until the one comes. Until he comes. But again, they would get kind of bogged down in all these circumstances. And what would they do? They would, tr- they would hope for a king that was not the king that God was going to provide for them. I mean, this has been one of the things that has been constantly plagued the Jewish people, right? They always want a king like the other kings of the world. Right? Remember Samuel? And even now, as they're hailing Jesus with all of this you know, magnificent praise, there's some signals here that tell us that they don't really see Jesus for who he really is. Let me give you an example. They're singing, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Well, what is that? It's a messianic psalm. Well, let's just go there just for a moment. Psalm 118. Who is this king? Let Israel say, verse 2, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall, not, I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. So they wanted a king who would render the worldly rulers as, you know, render them in, in, incapacitated in their role. And all along, God says, it's really, look, their rule is limited and temporary in the first place. What you need to do is, 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 to, is to recognize that your helper is by your side. Even when you deal with those who hate you. Verse 8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. What a message for us today. Where are we prone to trust in man and man's ways to overcome our problems? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. You know what's ironic? This is 118. That same phrase is in our psalm that Katie read just a little while ago. All the nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me and surrounded me on every side in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. Who's speaking now, by the way? Jesus. I cut those nations off for you. They surrounded me like bees and they went out like a a fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I I I was pushed hard so so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. See the intertwining of both the hope in the Lord here and yet the the psalmist speaking honestly? Glad songs of salvation, verse 15, are in the tents of the righteous. And the right hand of the Lord does um, uh, uh, valiantly. 
The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of the righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteousness shall en- the righteous shall enter through it. Who's the gate of the Lord? Jesus. The righteous enter through Jesus. They enter into new life through Jesus and Jesus alone. Not through other means. Let me just get on to the point. Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is the name, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords upon the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you, and you are my God. I will extol you. I extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. They're blessing Jesus as he's walking into the door, into the, I mean, he's riding this donkey into Jerusalem. And they're just using just one piece of this wonderful psalm. But I'm wondering if they have the full scope of the meaning of this psalm right in the back of their minds. Are they able to see exactly who this Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish? Because my guess is they didn't, and I'll tell you why. Because they're using these palm branches. You know, we like to do that, right? We've seen kids do these in plays and whatever else. Probably shouldn't, I'll tell you why. Because it's a symbol of nationalism. It's a symbol that they laid down in front of Jesus. And they're saying, here comes our big nationalistic hero. He's going to rescue Jerusalem from all of our political enemies. And that's what it had become because that symbol of uh, the palm fronds was actually a, sim- a nationalistic symbol placed, put in place since the Maccabean revolt. This is what they held Maccabeus and all of his troops who came back in after they defeated Greece. And here's Jesus. They're saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're putting the palm fronds down. But he's riding in on a, what? A donkey. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever seen a donkey and a, and a, and a steed next to each other? It's very unimpressive. And here comes Jesus in on the back of a donkey. These folks want a warrior king. Come in with strapping armor, right? I mean, he, they want him to come in. It's like they, they want the revelation Jesus, the second coming Jesus. They want the tattoo down his leg, kind of Jesus with the sword. They want that Jesus who's going to come in in that moment. And he's going to put the final word on everything. But the way that Jesus gets us to that place is first by riding the back of a donkey. That the way that this conquering king accomplishes his job is what? Through peace. This was not the king they were looking for. My guess is, if we're, not, if we're honest with ourselves, it's not the king that sometimes we're looking for. And we look at all the challenges we face in our world today and we face in our own lives, and this is not the king we're looking for. And we're very much like the disciples. And look what the disciples do. I mean, it's, again, if you ever want to question the validity of the Bible, the first thing you got to get over is the fact that how quickly the disciples who wrote, like John, wrote this book, and he doesn't mind throwing the disciples under the bus. Which just concludes himself, by the way. And it says here, the disciples, verse 16, did not understand these things. 
But when Jesus was glorified, they would remember what these things had been written about him and what had been done to him. In other words, they didn't get it at this moment. And then the crowd, it says, had been with him when they, since he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and they had raised him from the dead and they continued to bear witness. So they, they, they are making some connections, but they're still missing it. They're still kind of in, in, totally engulfed in all of this cultural phenomena because they desperately wanted a king. Listen, friends, it's not wrong to want a king. The question is, what kind of king do we want? And the Pharisees certainly were the apex of human rebellion, right? Look at this guy. Everyone's going after him. That's what it comes down to. Like, they're at least the most honest about the whole situation. Like, we're just, we don't want this guy. We don't want this king. This is not the king we want. This is not the king we need. Friends, the application should be pretty clear here, right? I hope it is. That there's two ditches we want to avoid in when we think about this triumphal entry. One is the ditch we've already kind of mentioned is that, that we kind of turn Jesus into some nationalistic hero. He's not. Because if you do that, then what you do is, is you basically kind of short in any type of like international missions endeavor, right? Because our particular sequence of events here in America are not always going to be the same as, say, Gabriel going into Romania. Or our friends in Minsk right now. Go ask them how it's going. Everyone's got challenges. And Christians all across the globe have got challenges with all kinds of different governments and all kinds of different challenges of cultural challenges. The reality is, is for us, when we talk about the hope of Jesus, we do dare not ever make Jesus into a nationalistic hero. That's not what he's come to do. It's not what he'll do when he comes back. It's not what he is about. Matthew 21 tells us the second thing that we need to avoid, though. Now, that doesn't mean just because he doesn't come to be a nationalistic hero, some warrior king, at least in the initial phase, doesn't mean that he's passive either. Jesus is very much involved in this whole sequence of events. He's the one who tells his disciples in Matthew 21 to go and find the donkey that's there that no one's ever ridden and get it prepared for me as I come into Jerusalem. So Jesus knows what this is all about. He's inviting them to see who he really is, but as he's walking in and he's riding in, they, he realizes they don't see me at all. And that's what Luke, 20, Luke 19 tells us. This is the one I do want to read. Luke 19, because he's looking over Jerusalem after this entire event, sequence of events, and we get the real heart of what Jesus sees about and how he interprets this whole sequence of events. Is he happy about these people hailing him as king? No, he's not because they don't see him for the real king he is. And so here's what he says in verses uh, 41 through 44. And when he drew near and he saw the city, okay, this is after the triumphal entry, he wept over it. Jerusalem just celebrated him. No, he wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down the, to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
Jesus didn't come in to be a nationalistic hero to, to, to Israel. And he doesn't do it for us here today either. We need to see Jesus for who he really is. Because Jesus allowed Jerusalem to fall. The temple would be destroyed just a few years after this. Of course, it's been rebuilt. We understand that. But the reality is, when we read these texts, we must, it must prompt us to deeper reflection, right? Deeper reflection on, where does my hope lie? Where does your hope lie right now? As we press into Thanksgiving, and we press into Christmas, and we press into the future for our, our families and our, whatever those things may entail, I just wonder, and I, and I have to ask myself this, because I'm, I'm standing in the same place you are, would I be disturbed um, if the Jesus that I say I serve doesn't fit the little box that I create for my life? I'm fearful that we already know people who've abandoned the church and they're, you know, giving themselves over to all kinds of ideas uh, and cultural beliefs about sexuality and, and any other number of things. But I'm wondering if there's going to be a number of people on the other side of the, of the sequence of events, right, the, whatever you want to call it, and they're going to leave the church because Jesus doesn't meet the need that they expect him to meet, too. Because he's not the apex predator king that they want him to be, at least initially. Be careful that we don't turn Jesus into something he's not. He's not that. Again, in Revelation, he comes back riding on that steed, and he judges the earth, and he slays his enemies, finally and fully, and it'll happen. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be ridiculous. But the pathway towards that is the king of peace, the prince of peace, who lays down his life so that all might live. Friends, that's our job here today. We lay down our lives because that's the only way in which we're going to be able to see Jesus. Because the Greeks come in here, right? And they come in and they ask who Jesus is. And this is the next little section. It's their second point. Seeing Jesus, right? Do we, are we anticipating the right king? Are we, are we looking? Are we seeing the right king? And so this is an opportunity for Jesus to get with his disciples and say, I want you to know, do you see it? So the Greeks come in and they're inquiring of Philip. We want to see Jesus. We've heard a lot about him. We need to see Jesus. And so Philip's like, uh, okay, I don't know what to do about that. So it goes to Andrew, who's kind of one of the inner circle, I guess. Uh, there's some guys out here who want to see Jesus. Is that a, is that, can, we, can we work that out? Is there a coffee date we can arrange for him? And Andrew's like, um, I don't know. Let's go find out. Let's go talk to Jesus. And what's really fantastic about this whole sequence of events, it's, very, it's, it's fascinating, is Jesus never gives one ounce of concern for the Greek's request. He turns this completely towards his disciples. Before we can worry about them seeing me, here's the question I have for you is, do you see me? And that's what he does, right? He takes this whole sequence of events, and then he turns and says, look, the hour's come. And the hour wasn't this silly little festival that they just threw for my, my honor. The hour has come, and here is the hour, that my full glory will be revealed through what? 
my death. What's what he says here? The hour has come. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant also or be also. In other words, what he's saying to his disciples is, it's, it's, before you can be concerned about how the world sees me, my question to you is, do you see me? Do you see the means? Do you see the real king that stands before you? Friends, this is always the question for anyone who professes to be a believer here. Do you see Jesus? Do you see him as the one true king? Because if you don't, it doesn't matter what our missional efforts do. It doesn't matter how much money we pour into missions. It doesn't matter how many churches we plant. Because if we don't see Jesus, no one else is going to see him either. And that's why we look into this season and we look into kind of our missions focus over the next few weeks and we look at all of our new partnerships. Like the question for all of us here is, do we see Jesus? Because if we see Jesus, it will compel us to go with Gabriel. It'll compel us to love our brothers and sisters in, 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 in Belarus. It'll compel us to some relationships in, in Haiti that we've been possibly thinking about or, or at least, you know, praying for. Only that, only when we see Jesus, the real king that we should be anticipating, will we be able to see, or will we be able to embrace the full weight of the mission that God calls us into? See, Jesus' death bears the fruit that leads to new life. He uses this imagery of the fall of the, the, the seed, right? The grain that falls, grain of wheat that falls. Well, we're in the middle of fall right now, are we not? And this is a wonderful time to remind ourselves that it takes what? Death that will eventually result in new life in the spring. Right? And that's what we need to remind ourselves, that in order for us to gain new life, it comes through death, and the death of the King, death of the Son of God, the one who then gives us the possibility, uh, the, the, the guarantee of new life, excuse me. Friends, look, there is no true Christianity, no true Christianity without resting in the substitutionary work of Jesus. When I say substitute, that's a big word. He gave his life for you, sinner. That's why we say Jesus paid it all. Saying Jesus paid it all. There is no Christianity apart from resting in Jesus' substitution of his life for your life. You can't anticipate the right king if you're not going to see the king for who he really is and what he has come to do. The Christian life is, I am now complete in Christ. I'm not just a potential completion. I'm not just someone who has potential for reconstruction or re-reformation. But that because of what Christ has accomplished through his work on the cross and the death that leads to new life, I am, by God's grace, who I am right now, and that will never change because of what Christ has done for me. Amen. And friends, that's what, we, that's what he wants his disciples to see, that Christ is there, Christ is our full identity for those who fall, who have put their trust in him.
and that frees us wonderfully from the tyranny of all kinds of you know, self-improvement projects and, uh, and, and others' expectations on our lives. And, the reason, and listen, and I'm not saying self-improvement like self is not a bad thing. You know, many of you guys know I'm, I'm, I'm working on trying to lose weight. I'm doing that. I want to do that. That's a good thing, and I'm, I can't, I'm excited about that. But if I never lose one pound, or if I gain it all back, I am who I am in Christ, and that will never change. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of Christianity. That's the message of this church. Never Lose sight of that, my friends. Because it's then that we begin to rest in this king, right? You anticipate the king, and only when we anticipate the right king can we see the right king in Jesus and what he's come to do. And in that door, how enables us to rest in this king. And that's what verses 27 through 36, and I'm just going to go high level here for a second to move us on down the road. He's troubled. He says, my soul is troubled. He, he sees the reality of what he has to do in order to accomplish the mission of God. He sees this reality, and he's going to his Father in heaven and says, can this pass this cup from me? Luke 22, he gets it. And when he says pass this cup, it means he has to drink the cup of wrath that you and I are supposed to drink because of our sin against God. But Jesus himself goes and drinks that cup on our behalf. Again, that substitutionary vision there. And so he's troubled. But then he says these wonderful words. But how, what, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is not even an ounce hesitant to his work. We might read that and we might think, well, my gosh, is Jesus like second-guessing everything? no. And because, because later on in verse 30, he says this was done for your benefit. This whole dialogue between the, me and the Father is all for your benefit. Why? So that you could say, look, do you understand the full weight of what must happen if things are going to be made right again? Do you? He gives us this wonderful dialogue between the Father and the Son so that you and I would have no question as to what must happen from this king. And what this king must do in order for you and I to have new life. He's not hesitant. No, we gain from the benefit of what his work is. There's no reservation in Jesus. And there's three things in this that are really helpful for us in terms of what we're to rest in specifically. And we see it here. It says, Jesus answered, the voice of God came, uh, comes not for my sake. For, this is, for, for now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Three things there. If you, see the right, if, you, if you anticipate the right king, you see the right king, you can rest in the king's work. And what is the king's work? This world's running off its wheels, off its axes right now. We all know this. The wheels are coming off the butts, friends. But Jesus judges the world. Amen. His cross the first time, his first coming, has already judged the world. The full judgment of this world has already happened at the cross. 
regardless of whatever else happens here, whatever else transpires around us, between now and the time Jesus returns again, you and I can rest assured this, that Jesus has judged the world. But two, and man, this is beautiful, he's bound Satan. Now. Like that binding is not future. That Satan right now still has to get his marching orders from the throne of God. Job tells us that, right? But Jesus secures that. His death on the cross and his resurrection put death to death, so therefore there is no power of death. And when God resurrects his people to new life, you and I, he binds Satan's ability to destroy us. Amen. Oh, that doesn't mean that sin's not a reality. It doesn't mean that we will not feel the death pangs of sin from now, for, from here and there throughout the rest of our time. We won't struggle with sin. But what it means is that sin doesn't get the final word. Death doesn't get the final word. Satan is bound. And no matter how many times craftily he tries to work around the system, he can never get through the security we have in Jesus. He can never do it. And he draws all men to himself. Friend, I don't know about you, but I feel so weak on most days of my life. I mean, I feel really weak most days of my life. I feel like, man, why has God put up with such a miserable mess as me? And I read those words, and I say, praise God, because I never had the power, the will, the, 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 the desire, but my God did. And he drew me to himself. And when I'm out there sharing the good news with people, he will draw them to himself. And I can rest in that. I can rest in that. Friends, this is what I hope will happen out of this message. And it's been a little all over the map this morning. I hope this prompts you to deeper Thanksgiving this year. It's easy to be thankful for the earthly things. It's easy to be thankful for the mom who's going to work dutifully in the kitchen for you the next few days and get all that wonderful food all together for you. But are you thankful for the fact that your king laid down his life for you? I hope it prompts you to deeper hope. We live in a hopeless world, guys. And be it not for what Jesus has done. I think, we, okay, I, think I can probably say, please say this for about everyone in here. I think we would all just go mad, would we not? And rightfully so. So when the world lives hopelessly apart from Christ, why do we expect them not to act mad and fall into madness and craziness? Hold on to Jesus. His anchor is sure. And last, I hope it prompts you to crazy joy this Christmas. Crazy joy. Now here's what joy is. Gabriel went to a pastor's group with me on Thursday. Joy isn't happiness. Joy is the combination of hope in the midst of sorrow. Amen. 
Joy is the combination of hope in the midst of sorrow. Friends, every one of us in here has so much sorrow, and sometimes that grief can be overwhelming. And I'm praying for some of you guys. Some of you guys are facing some really difficult, a blue Christmas this year for many different reasons. But there's hope in the sorrow, and that's from where your joy springs. Why? Because if the, king, as the world looks for their king, our king has already come the first time, given his life for his people, and he's coming back one day for his people. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's prepare, let's prepare for the Lord's table. Jesus, thank you for this morning.